This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. This is Chapter 19 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, this week's Beach Read is a psychological thriller that will have you asking yourself if you have what it takes to survive. Plus, we honor dads everywhere ahead of Father's Day. The newest book from thriller writer Lisa Gardner is called Find Her. It centers around Flora Dane, a kidnapping victim who escaped her abductor, only to find herself caught up in another girl's kidnapping five years later. She spoke with me about her new novel. Find Her features Flora Dane. She was kidnapped and held for 472 days. But this is also a story of a survivor. Flora Dane was once a victim, and she is now sworn she will never be a victim again. But what does that look like? In her case, she has scotted into her head that if she can just rid the streets of Boston of other predators, she will finally be able to sleep at night. So she's gone from just an ordinary college student to an expert in self-defense. She knows crazy MacGyver tricks like how to take things out of your trash and start chemical fire to ward off a rapist. She was once a victim, but she's now a vigilante. And when another Boston girl goes missing, Flora Dane decides if she can find her and bring her home safely, then maybe she can find a happily ever after for both of them. And and the road that takes her to get down there, it's it's pretty dark. What what led you to write about uh, everything you write about in this book? Well, I am definitely drawn to psychological suspense. You know, what makes a criminal a criminal? But in this case of Finder, it's really what makes a survivor a survivor. There is strength in Floridaine, and she is maybe in some ways compensated a little too much. She's gone too far down the vigilante path. But it is that determination to never be a victim again, which is, I think, something we can relate to. It's that need to feel like she is strong enough and that if the worst does happen next time, she will be in a position to handle it, which I think, again, is something that, you know, when you watch the nightly news, you can relate to this desire to want to feel like you could handle anything out there. And she's still compassionate. She knows what it's like to be a victim. And so she doesn't want other people to have to experience that. And so she feels the strong connection with the cases she sees in the news. And when she hears about someone like Stacey Summers, Sprite Bubbly Blonde, who's disappeared, she's like, she wants to make that right. But yes, it is very much a story about a girl who told herself that if she once got out of a really terrible situation, she, you know, she'd never complain again. But this is real life. And while she is a survivor, she's not yet thriving. She's still very much a work in progress. So the reader, along with Flora, spends a lot of time in the dark in this book. Is that you just tapping into a primal fear? Is it something you yourself are afraid of? The scariest things I ever wrote in in 25 years of suspense is in Find Her. And it's interesting to me because it's purely psychological. Um, she is in the dark and she can hear breathing. 
that's it. I mean, that's basically the scene. And it's crazy. Like, people write to me. It's like, they, I mean, they were completely on the edge of their sink bonkers. <laughs> no, I, I have to agree because that is. was terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, you, you don't need a real boogeyman out there to be frightened. You just need to not know what's out there to be terrified. But it's a testimony to Flora Dane that... But, you know, she is not going to go quietly into that good night. I mean, she is going to figure this out. And I think that's that resilience. It's a dark book in some ways, but it's her determination to overcome everything. And frankly, I mean, I have to say the really cool tricks with chemical fire do make it a fun reading experience. You're like, oh, okay, next time I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I actually learned how to get out of handcuffs for the novel. That was part of my research. If If you had... You were in handcuffs and someone had cuffed you. How can you get out of them? And there are a lot of tricks for it. And it was kind of fun to learn. And it does make you feel better to know if I was ever handcuffed, I can get out. I know how. Yep. <laughs> and that, le- that kind of leads me into my next question. Like, did you do anything special also to to tap into what it feels like to be enclosed in a small, dark space? My, my husband actually thought this was hysterical. But Flora um, Dane, for the when she was kidnapped, she was for a while held in a box. So I had to kind of work out what are the dimensions in this box. So I put together the chairs of the dining room table, and basically if you laid under the legs, <laughs> and then try to figure out, well, how much could you actually move? I did a lot of research with real-life kidnapping people, and it was interesting to hear them talk about one of the most difficult psychological ordeals of being a kidnapped is the boredom. You know, spending hours, days, you lose track of time when you are restrained to very small spaces. And to keep yourself sane, you have to come up with ways of coping. So like Flora Dane, you know, it's like she does come up with this very, very abbreviated but very tiny, you know, like workout regimen. It is something to do. She plays with the air holes in the box. Um, I read about a girl who, you know, she basically named the flies in her room and had, you know, fly races with them. And it's interesting, these are the ways you do, this is coping. I mean, it's actually really high-level coping. So getting into the mindset of all of that was really fascinating as part of the research for the book. And I know one of the things that she also does is, is remember a little bit about her childhood and the foxes come up, and foxes come up throughout the yeah. book. Why is that a symbol you chose to use? I live in the mountains of New Hampshire, and uh, we do have foxes in our neighborhood. And um, I just find them magical. They're just an interesting mix between a cat and a dog. Um, domestication's a strong word, but they definitely get accustomed to you. And to watch fox kids play is just kind of magical. And Flora's a girl from the wilds of Maine. I needed something to kind of symbolize um, the girl she was. I mean, here was someone who was happiest outdoors happiest in nature, which meant being kidnapped and restrained in a box for her was a particularly terrible ordeal. But again, the way she found to cope and make herself even stronger. I thought the use of glitter as a forensic evidence was a yeah. great bit of like levity throughout the story. Where'd you, where'd you come up with that idea to use glitter? That is from real life. Um, one of my favorite parts of being a suspense novelist is researching everything from latest police procedures to the latest forensic stuff. And, you know, the, the big joke in the forensic world is glitter has become the new duct tape. Um, you, There's huge databases for it. You can trace it. 
any mom who's ever had a kid play with glitter, it gets on everything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. And we're using glitter like mad. Like when I first told people I was using glitter, they're like, what, like from arts and crafts? I'm like, there's glitter in makeup. There's glitter on your jeans. There's glitter on cards now. It actually has been used in a number of major murder cases. It's incredible. So, and then not to get to thing everyone should obsess about is their Fitbits and Alexa and things like that. They're now being called as witnesses in murder cases. So real life means my books will never be boring. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess we can expect some of the uh, new technology to maybe make their way into your yep. next book. Yep. <laughs> well, Lisa Gardner, author of Find Her, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you, Lisa. We're coming up on Father's Day, and while it's a day of celebration for most, it can be difficult for those who've lost their fathers. Allison Gilbert is a TV producer turned author who's written several books on dealing with grief. The latest is Past and Present, Keeping Memories of Loved Ones Alive. I spoke with her about how exactly we can do that. In your latest book, you offer up ways to those of us who've lost loved ones on how to keep their memories alive. How do you think people can do that? I think the most important strategy that I would have in mind that I would really want listeners to recognize and appreciate is the importance of just doing something. I know that sounds trite, but sometimes the hardest thing is just moving forward and knowing that the actual act of remembering, it actually does take work. And so what I mean by that is that there's a difference, a striking difference between what happens to us when our loved one dies. I call that passive mourning, you know, mourning as, you know, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, right? Passive mourning, where people, if you're lucky, generally offer their support without you having to work so hard, right? They, you know, they come to a funeral, they may, you know, go to a wake or go to a shiva, they may bring you food and call you and text you. What happens later requires that action of the person who wants to do the remembering. And that's active. Active remembering is different than passive mourning. And that makes all the difference is doing something. I guess a lot of people don't do something because it's so painful to remember. Well, it's not that it's painful. And I would actually argue that um, if taken uh, in the appropriate steps, if doing things in an empowering, uplifting way, remembering actually can give enormous growth and happiness and fuel joy. I did this um, wonderful essay for Oh, the Oprah magazine, and it was called The Reflection Effect. And it was all about the power of nostalgia to transform lives for the better, which actually sounds counter to what you just said, right? That remembering can actually make you feel sad. Of course, there's always this mix of sadness and having your memories fuel this greater connection to your loved ones after they die. The trick is recognizing that embracing the past, looking at photos, cooking reminiscent recipes, all of that can be incredible fodder for making us happy with our memories and making us recognize and validate that these connections are still important to us. So let's talk a little bit more about this science of nostalgia. You feel it can be a driver of personal and professional growth. Can you explain that a little bit? 
100%. This is the most fascinating topic, and I love, love, love writing about it. So nostalgia um, is considered a social emotion, kind of like empathy. And it seems odd to appreciate or understand that as much as looking back would maybe, in theory, make you feel more alone, it actually is just the opposite. It makes you feel more connected, not just to the people who have have died or in your past, but it heightens and strengthens your connections to those friends, those family members in the present. And that, to me, is the greatest gift, that if you can remember and actually use that as an opportunity to building and strengthening those bonds that you have around you today, that means that you get to move forward after the loss of a loved one, but then also gain new relationships in the process of these recollections. And that's really the golden ticket, right? The golden ticket is not leaving your loved one behind, black and white, before and after, you know, cutting off memories. The trick is the word and, A-N-D. How can you remember, honor, reflect upon those who have passed away and honor them and have them be a part of your present? And that's really where I, gave, where I came up with the idea for my book, Past and Present, right? Past is a play on words. It's not P-A-S-T. It's P-A-S-S-E-D, like passed away. So past and present is really all about that nugget, that seed of an idea that those who have passed away can still be part of our present. And in doing so, by recognizing that and doing it in like the right way and the taking appropriate steps and being proactive, that can fuel enormous growth and actually make you really happy. For our listeners who are listening to you and struggling with this concept, can you offer anything concrete or a concrete example of what maybe they can do? Yes, for sure. I think the the primary example that can kind of really hopefully resonate with anyone listening today is that a lot of times after our loved one dies in the years after, the people around us who may be very well-intentioned may forget to call us on our loved one's birthday or on the anniversary of their death. And so that leads many of us to kind of start feeling resentful or angry or even more isolated because those days are kind of hidden from public view if we don't talk about our loved ones, so, or at least do things to honor their memory for us. And so as an example, you know, many of us carry around our phones in our pockets, right? You might be listening to this podcast, you know, on your iPhone. And so one great way of keeping loved ones present is using the tools that are already in uh, your pocketbook or in your pocket or in your fingertips. So like your phone, as an example. So Father's Day is coming up and we just had Mother's Day. And so one great way of honoring a loved one who has died, if that's a father fig in your life, is make sure your friends and family know that you would like to honor them on Father's Day. And so when you post something on Facebook or on Twitter, let's say, and you're uploading a photograph of your dad, make sure your loved ones know your intention is that you want to have a digital water cooler experience, so to speak. You want to talk about your father. You want to share your memories. You want them in turn. Here's the trick 
it's not just a one-way street to really gain the value of social media when it comes to honoring our loved ones and keeping their memory present. You must engage in a dialogue. Invite your friends and family to post their stories too, their photographs of your dad also. And perhaps in that way, you can celebrate the hardest day. Father's Day can be really hard if you've lost your dad. I know that because my father has passed away too just a few days after 9-11. So I get it. But if you can try to create a prism by which you can turn a hard day into a day of celebration of the relationship you had, you are on a path to having those memories fuel joy and not just sadness. And I guess it remains to be said that this isn't something that's going to happen overnight. This is going to take some time for you to reach this point. Well, I agree. And I think that's the reason why I structured my book, Past and Present, with 85 um, strategies, opportunities, and tips for remembering your loved ones. These are easy to digest and don't have to be followed in any particular order. They're also pretty easy, right? And so if one idea doesn't appeal to you, then you can obviously skip forward to another strategy that may um, resonate, right? So there are ideas in Past and Present that revolve around cooking. There are ideas that revolve around, you know, let's say gardening in the warmer weather or going for walks. Maybe none of that feels right to you, but you're much more of a practical person and you are left with your loved ones or your father's books or his sweaters or his neckties. What can you do with possessions, mementos, heirlooms? How can you upcycle them? How can you donate them meaningfully? Um, So, and also there's an idea in the book about travel. How can we leave the New York City area and put ourselves in community with others who also want to reflect and honor their loved ones? So you can obviously make friends and be around a supportive community who also are completely invested in keeping keeping memories present. And that's really the goal is to make it less isolating, more joyful, and maybe meet new friends along the way who can share this journey with you. Now, you also have an idea of how to honor dads who are living in an unexpected way. I do. I do. So in my work talking about how to remember loved ones, I came across something that I think is just um, remarkable to pass along. So there's um, an unlikely source of these. It's like a deck of cards. And they're called Have the Talk of a Lifetime. They're put out by the National Funeral Directors Association, which I know sounds completely odd to say, uh, in a talk and a conversation about life and joy and finding incredible meaning in our journey forward after the loss of a loved one, that I would be citing something that comes from the NFDA. But they have come up with a deck of cards called Have the Talk of a Lifetime. And basically on every single card, they have, questions that you can take out in a car when you're driving somewhere that you can take a, you know out on a picnic blanket you can really you know they're so small that they can obviously go anywhere and the questions are kind of like you know what was your favorite bedtime story uh, what made you 
laughed so hard, you cried. Uh, who has been the most influential person in your life, right? These are questions to ask your father. They may not be questions that are uh, top of mind, but they certainly paint a picture with your dad today that you can keep with you, and you can either write down their answers, you can just try to remember them, you can record them on your phone, um, but this is a way to ensure legacy, and I find that to be a tremendous gift. If you're lucky to have your dad alive, why not have that talk where you can really learn more about him, um, because we all know, um, you know, things happen, and it's good to keep these memories today. And it's a great way also to learn things before it's too late and you can't ask anymore. Yeah, 100%. And I, you know, I must say there's another idea in past and present that I must pass along that I think is really just fantastic. So we're talking about different ways of honoring um, our dads in the present or dads who've passed away, you know, years ago. And there's an idea that I wrote about in past and present called Legacy Republic. And I love them so much because they help you digitize those photographs. You know, we all have so many photographs and slides and maybe it's home movies or, you know, you know, film reels from the past, and I did too, right? After my mother and my father passed away, I was really left with a lot of um, memories that kind of were in that old media state, and I couldn't really enjoy them with my family, and I couldn't show my kids, more importantly, who their grandparents you know, were on tape until I digitized them. But the trick, you know, you and I mentioned before this wonderful opportunity of social media to keep memories present. The thing that Legacy Republic does that other companies don't do, and I talked about this in my book when I reported about past, when I reported past and present, but I didn't even know Legacy Republic existed before I started writing the book, is that they'll come to you and they'll package up your materials on your behalf and then send them away to their offices to get them digitized. So that fear, that fear of not finding the right company, that fear of having to go to multiple places to kind of get this work done, which can really make people not want to do the work at all, right? If it feels too daunting, then you kind of just let things sit. And the awful thing about VHS tapes, as I know you know, is that um, the magnetism, right, that keeps things working, you know, fades over time. And so those VHS memories will not be there if we don't digitize them. And so I reported about Legacy Republic, and now I'm partnering with them. And I'm just, I just, I'm moved by the ability of photos to keep memories present and to fuel that joy that nostalgia brings. And so I feel like that's good for dads, you know, with Father's Day coming up who are living. And I feel, of course, it's good to keep memories present, um, of those dads who are like mine, um, who have passed away. And that's years ago. My dad died, I mentioned to you, on September 14th, 2001. And the opportunity to have my children, um, who never got to know my dad, be able to watch him in a video and hear his voice, um, that keeps the relationship present for them. And it's really important to me that they have a relationship with their paternal grandfather. And so to me, that's a great gift. Well, Allison, thank you so much for joining us today and really giving us a lot to think about, but also a great way to deal with memories and with grief. Thank you so much for having me. The website for that archival company Allison mentioned is LegacyRepublic.com.
That wraps up this chapter of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Have an opinion? Email us at books at WCBS880.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books.